When you put your faith in Christ, you become one spirit with him. Jesus Christ goes with you. Wherever you go, he goes. Let that be a source of encouragement, but also a very jarring reality that whatever we do with our bodies, God goes there with us. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. Our current series, Human Sexuality in the Bible, explores what Scripture has to say on the topic of sex and our bodies. And here we find grace and truth as we consider marriage, singleness, sexual orientation, and more. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. I shared with you all the way back in week one that Corinth was a hyper-sexualized culture. They, they literally worshipped the god of sex, the goddess Aphrodite. And so one of the temples in Corinth had literally 1,000 temple prostitutes just in that one temple. And there were many other temples there. Um, our historians say that at least, at least one in 30 inhabitants of Corinth was a prostitute. And so it's a hyper-sexualized culture that they're living in. And the Apostle Paul is seeking to pastor this little church in this city of Corinth that they would be faithful with their bodies, with their bodies. And, and Corinth was such a hypersexualized culture that Corinth became a verb in the first century. So when kind of like this, let's say an adult son was going on a business trip to Corinth, his mother would say something like, don't you go Corinthianizing your life when you're up there in Corinth. And so what she means by that is don't engage in sexual promiscuity. Don't do that. And Corinth was known for this. It was kind of like Las Vegas in that way. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul wants to show this little church that there is an extremely spiritual dimension to sex and our bodies. That we are complex beings. We are biological, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual beings. Last week I gave you that big word. We are psychosomatic creatures. We are body and soul. And you can't, you can't separate them out from each other. They're inseparable from one another. That makes the whole person of who we are. And so here's kind of the, the thesis statement for Paul. I put, it, I, I put it this way in my notes. Paul wants you to see that because your body and your soul is inseparable, sex is far from a meaningless activity. It is far from a meaningless activity. So if you have your Bible, look with me at verse 12. Paul says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. So most of your Bibles have, I have the right to do anything in quotations. You see that? I have the right to do anything in both cases. They're in quotes because these are not Paul's words. This is a familiar slogan in the first century, kind of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Even if you've never been to Vegas before, everyone in this room knows what that means. You go to Vegas, you have a good time, it stays there. And Paul is trying to help us understand what this slogan is and how it is a total failure. So it would kind of like be saying something like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but what stays with you is the regret and the venereal disease. 
Right? So like, that's what Paul's trying to address here. He's saying something is wrong about the way that you are viewing your bodies. The freedom that you have, even in Christ. You are saying, I have the right to do anything I want. I'm totally free. I'm radically free. And doesn't that fit so perfectly with our Christian faith? Not only are non-Christians saying this, but Christians are saying, I've been set free by the blood of the Lamb. I've been set free from Christ. And therefore... I have the right to do anything. I can do whatever I want. And so if you're taking notes, last week we identified two myths that Christians in the first century believe, and many still believe today. Here's what they are. When we die, we will become kind of like Casper the friendly ghost in the sky, disembodied creatures, and or our bodies will be totally discarded. Totally discarded. And either way, whichever view you have of these two things, it doesn't matter what you do with your body because you're getting rid of it anyway. Right? It's like the wrapper of a Big Mac. You enjoy the Big Mac. What do you do with the wrapper? You throw it in the trash. It doesn't matter. That's the way that they viewed their bodies. And that's verse 13. Verse 13 says, You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, And God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and, get this, the Lord for the body. The Lord for the body. So there was this idea that uh, God was totally unconcerned with the physical body. The only thing that he cared about was your soul. The only thing he cared about was your heart. And so the place that we are called to kind of love God is with our whole heart, with our whole soul, with our whole mind. But the body doesn't really matter. And Paul says, that's a bold-faced lie. It's a lie. And it was a very powerful idea in the early church. Let me just kind of, I want to nerd out for a second, and there's a reason for it. Because my prayer for you in this series is not just that you would develop a series of kind of moral position statements on a variety of different sexual topics, but that you would have a worldview of Christ and what he says about your body, that it would shape the way you think about your body. Do you see the difference? So you might recall all the way back in week two, we talked about worldviews. So let's look at this for a second. I said different worldviews lead to different authorities, which result in different assumptions and different answers to questions on different moral issues that different people embrace. And I asked you, where do we spend all of our time as a culture? Where do we spend all of our time practically as a church? Do we not focus on the last three trying to identify different answers to questions on different moral issues that different people embrace? What's your stance on this? What's your stance on that? Do you believe the same thing that I believe? And we're caught up in moral issues. And yet Paul, what he wants to do is he wants to elevate the conversation so that you have an understanding as to why God thinks the way that he does about moral issues. So that you don't think of God as some arbitrary dictator telling you what you can and can't do, but that you would have an understanding that he loves you, he wants what is best for you, and the way that he created your bodies to function best is is in a particular way. And then there's a whole series of other ways that will result in the breakdown and the destruction of your bodies. So 
Now, I want you to look at this with me. In the first century Roman world, there was a very powerful belief in something called Platonic dualism. Platonic dualism. And so that's the idea that the physical body is totally worthless. Totally worthless. It's, it's going away. And that the only, the only thing that matters is the spiritual. Right? And so, like, even on dating sites, sometimes you can choose platonic relationship. What does that mean? I'm not interested in, you know, a, a physical or sexual relationship. I'm only interested in a relationship where we talk about things, where we kind of intellectually connect with each other. And this starts right here. Plato, he is in Greece, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from Corinth. And his ideas were deeply embedded within the first century culture in Corinth, that the physical body doesn't matter. And so from that, the church, I would love to tell you that the church uh, rejected this idea, but they didn't. They totally adopted it, and they developed a new idea called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is basically Platonic dualism, church edition. And here's the idea. The physical world and our body is evil, totally evil. And our only hope is to spiritually transcend this world and to be free from the body. That's the idea. That's the assumption that they have in their mind. And then when you think about it for more than five minutes, there's an obvious implication, an obvious question. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with John chapter 1? In the beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What do we do with the resurrection of Jesus? And so they had an answer for that, and they developed something called docetism. And docetism is the idea that Jesus' body, it wasn't actually human. It was merely a phantom. It was an illusion. Jesus, docetism literally means to seem or to appear or to be an illusion of something. So Jesus only appeared human, but he was fully God, fully God, but he wasn't fully physical. Like, you believe that the creator of the universe poops, right? Like, you believe that he gets tired and he needs to take a nap? You believe that he has a physical body and he would reduce himself down to flesh? Of course he wouldn't do that. And so this is the idea that has emerged in the first century that the church in Corinth is just totally caught up in. Now, this idea, both of these ideas, all three actually, were rejected at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, but the philosophy and the idea continues to live on to this day. To this day. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus more spiritual than us? I think we'd all like nod our head. Of course he's more spiritual than us. Well, let me ask you another question. Is Jesus more human than us? Now, that's a different question. Julie and I were having that conversation this past week, and she's like, well, what do you mean? What do you mean Jesus is more human than, than I am or than we are? And yet what we see here is that Jesus is the complete embodiment, the perfect embodiment of what it means to be human. And it is a total rejection of this idea. So Paul is laying out the obvious implication of this thinking when he says, you say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. So let's look again at this worldview chart for a second, if we can show that. Different worldviews, different authorities, different assumptions. I want you to see that if we have different assumptions tied to our worldview, 
then it will cause us to think about moral issues very differently. Everyone who was involved in um, Gnosticism and in Docetism, they believed Jesus was Lord. They believed that he was king of the universe. They just had an assumption that said the body is totally worthless. As Christians, they were thinking that. And on account of that, they had a very low view of the body and then moral issues in the physical sense began to matter less and less and less and less. So let me show you this. Paul addresses it. Um, the way I'm framing this is kind of the, the religious left and the religious right pitfall. You should expect two pitfalls with respect to having a low view of the body. The first one is the religious left, and that the idea is the gospel frees me to do whatever I want with my body. Whatever I want with my body. So Christians in Corinth were using this idea to justify doing whatever they wanted with their bodies. They said it's just biology, right? If, if you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you have a drink. If you have an itch, you scratch the itch. If you're tired, you go to bed. If you have a sexual urge, you go to the temple. You get rid of that urge, you feel better, you go home. What's the big deal? And again, if you have that assumption that the body does not matter, I think we can all say, that makes a lot of sense. If that's the assumption. If that's your view of the human body. And it still happens today. How might it sound today? Maybe someone will say something like, well, pastor, the reason why we have premarital sex is because it's enjoyable and we're probably going to get married one day anyway, so it doesn't really matter. It's just physical. Or the reason why I watch porn is because I, it's just a release for me. I enjoy that. It's no big deal. It's just physical. And this is the way that we lie to ourselves today. But Paul argues against that form of thinking when he essentially says, being freed from the law is not a justification to do whatever you want with your desires. Like, can we admit something? Every single person in this room has distorted desires. All of us have desires that are contrary to the will of God. Like, I don't know about you, but my idea of uh, a perfect night is just to gorge myself on all my favorite foods, and I'd like to do it every night. I want ribeye steak. I want deep fried food. I want fish and chips. I want uh, chips and dip. I want to enjoy it all and do it every single night, regardless of the effect that it has on my body. And when someone cuts me off in traffic, I want to go full-on Mario Kart mode on them, right? Shoot them with a red shell in the name and love of Jesus, of course, right? And like if, if there's something that's happening in the world that I disagree with, I would like to reorder the world in the way that I like it. Because as I've shared with you before, I agree with myself a lot. I love what I think you should do. But yet, here's what I know. I need to yield myself to the will and pleasure of God's word and not my will, not my desires, even and especially when what I think and what God thinks are contradicting with one another, that, that I would yield to the word of God so far as it depends on me with the power of the Holy Spirit. But at exactly the same time, this is what I think is really interesting. There's another group in this tiny little church on the other side, on the religious right. And here's the view that they had. Christians should abstain from all forms, from all forms of physical pleasure. 
And so the, the way that this was happening was that even in their own Christian marriages, they were saying, we should no longer have sex. We should no longer be intimate with one another because that devolves us. Because the human body, the physical body is evil. It's something we should flee from. And every time we enjoy pleasure, then it it detracts from that. It pulls us away from God. And so if we want to become more spiritual, we have to become less physical. They have a low view of the body. So if your Bibles are open, um, look ahead with me at 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. I I just find this really, really interesting. It says, now for the matters that you wrote about, you got to get that. He's not saying this. This is a letter that he has received. And they said at the last letter, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's in quotations, right? So Paul sent a letter Remember, 1 Corinthians is not 1 Corinthians. It's at least 2 Corinthians. We just don't have that letter. Um, he, he first wrote a letter, and presumably he said, avoid sexual immorality. Then they wrote back, and they said, okay, so here's what we got to do. Even in our own marriages, we should never have sex. We should never enjoy pleasure. We got to get rid of the body. That's what we got to focus on. And he's saying, no, no, that's, that's not the point. That's, that's not what I'm saying here. You're still caught up in Platonic dualism. You're still caught up in Gnosticism. You still have this idea that the body is something that is evil, that is grotesque, that is disgusting, and you should flee from all those things, like enjoying a good vista, going for a walk, enjoying good food, um, holding hands with, with friends, raising holy hands in worship. All those physical things are evil and disgusting. And we need to transcend the body and become more spiritual. The only way we get closer to God is if we refrain from enjoying physical pleasure. Paul says, no, you missed the point. You totally missed the point. And so here's what I want you to see, friends. That uh, both the desire to live into full-on sexual passion, what you might call licentiousness, And to totally disregard all pleasure within the physical body, what you might call asceticism, both of them are the result of a low view of the body. Both of them are twin pitfalls on the road of sexual faithfulness with God and how we use our bodies in the main. So now look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13 says, you say, food for the stomach, the stomach for food, God will destroy them both. No, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God cares about the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you see what he's doing? He's refuting Platonic dualism. He's refuting Gnosticism. He's saying, no, not that, not that. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself. And so just like we learned last week, we have to see this, that never does scripture say that we're just going to do away with our bodies. The creation account shared with us that God delighted when he created his creation. He said it was good. And then when he made you the pinnacle of his creation, he said, Very good. Human beings with flesh and blood made in the image and the likeness of God. He said, very good. He 
loves his creation. He loves his physical creation. And it's because he cares so much about his physical creation that he wants to highlight to you how to use our bodies best. It's a positive sexual ethic, not a negative one. Not a negative one. I just, I hope you can see that, that these are not arbitrary in what God is seeking to highlight to us. So out of these myths came two myths about sex. I put it this way in your note sheet. So sex is just physical, like any other physical pleasure. We talked about that. And what you do with your body has no bearing on your soul. No bearing whatsoever. Those are the myths. Now, let me ask you a question. Do Christians still believe that today? Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. And if we don't have a solid theology of the body and we assume that everything is just physical, the body doesn't matter, then I think it makes perfect sense to say things like this. Show next slide, please. To say something like, I should be able to love whomever I want. To say things like, God doesn't care about who I have sex with or who I should have sex with. To say things like, love is love. Or just figure out what works for you. Or have you heard this last one before? What God really cares about is that you're a good, honest person and that you love people and that you are happy. Have you heard this before? And in some sense, it sounds like really, really good, but it's ultimately contrary to our perspective, which is, what does the word of God say? Even if, and especially, my ideas are contrary or conflicting to God's ideas. Especially because we all have desires that are contrary to the will of God. And so the rest of the chapter here, Paul's not only refuting claims on moral issues, because again, if we live in the moral issues world, it's not going to be helpful. He wants to give you a better worldview, better assumptions with which to have the eyes to see why we should use our bodies in certain ways. But before we do that, I would really like to convince you that there is an extremely personal, spiritual, and emotional dimension to sex. And I'm, I'm going to share a couple of questions with you. And the purpose here is not shock and awe. I, I just want you to be convinced that sex is not just physical. It's not just physical. So here's a couple questions I have for you. If sex is just physical, why is rape so much more psychologically damaging than any other form of physical violence? Why is it something that even those who have been harmed by that 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later are still affected by? Why is it the case that in instances in which there is marital unfaithfulness, like adultery, that is so crushing for the marriage relationship? Like the husband or the wife never goes, it's just physical, sorry, honey. Like, no big deal. It's just, you know, a little, a little thing. Why is it that it's so traumatic to the marriage? And why is it the case that even when we look at porn, it rewires our brain and it causes us to reshape and to rethink how we think about human beings who are made in the image and the likeness of God, that we begin to objectify human beings. Like, I just want to convince you that it's not just physical. It's not just physical. There's an extremely spiritual dimension to sex. 
and we overlook it. We overlook it all the time. Why is it the case that more often than not, people's deepest regrets are sexual? I've been a pastor for 10 years, and I, I just know every, every time someone comes up to me and they say, Pastor, I need to share with you something that I've never shared with anyone else, and I just don't know what to do with this. I already know what it's not going to be. It's not going to be, Pastor, I haven't paid my taxes for five years. You know, uh, Pastor, uh, man, I, I've just been gossiping and slandering people. I've got to learn how to control my tongue. Every single time, it has to do with either a sexual regret or sexual trauma from their past. Almost every single time, there's something deeply spiritual to sex. And you know what's really interesting to me is that even Hollywood recognizes this. Even some of Hollywood's best romantic comedies point to this. So here's a couple examples of this. Maybe you've seen some of these. Um, no Strings Attached, Friends with Benefits, Your Place or Mine, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, What Happens in Vegas. Pretty much any movie with Ashton Kutcher. <laughs> right? What, what's the premise of, of the movie? It's we're just friends. And, and we're, gonna, we're not going to you know, try to over-spiritualize this. We're going to try to have sex with each other, but no strings. Just fun, not complicated. And then what happens in every single movie? Halfway through the movie, there's this great conflict because they're experiencing deep feelings for one another that they can't explain, even though it's purely physical. And by the end of the movie, what are they doing? They're seeking to make covenantal relationships with each other, closed curtain. Every single time. So even Hollywood says there's something about sex that it can't just be physical. And every movie with Ashton Kutcher agrees with that. Every single one. Isn't that interesting? Like, it's not just Christians. Even Hollywood is readily willing to admit that there's something deeper that is going on here. Something deeper. And now here's the thing. Paul wants to tell you why. He wants to tell you why. And, and his answers are remarkably Trinitarian. If you have your Bibles open and you treat your Bible as a live textbook, I want you to take note of every time Paul asks the question, do you not know? Do you not know? And then he's going to talk about a person of the Trinity. So I want to show you these, and then we'll look more deeply at them together. So verse 15, do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 19, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you not know, verse 20, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. In other words, you belong to God. You belong to your heavenly Father. And he wants to lay out the implications of this. Something we don't think about very often with respect to our bodies is there is, there is a deeply spiritual dimension to sex and our bodies. So let's look at these a little more closely. The first one is relating to the Son, the Holy Spirit, or uh, Jesus Christ. Christ died to redeem our bodies, and we are now united with him. So we see in verse 14, God raised up the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. And so again, just like last week on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus Christ did not only die and rise again for the sake of our sin, though he did, most certainly he did. He also died and rose again for the redemption and the restoration of our bodies, of our bodies. 
And I think more often than not, we're, we're just thinking about the sin. Set free from sin. Hooray. But what about death and decay of our bodies? We have been set free. We've been resurrected with him. That we will have new resurrected bodies. The way that he has and does today as he stands bodily at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's where Jesus is right now in flesh. So you cannot do something sexually that does not impact your soul and that does not have an impact on your relationship with Jesus. With Jesus. And then he continues in verse 15. Verse 15, we read, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So here's what I want you to recognize. Paul uses literally the cheapest form of sex that he can find to make his point. So he doesn't talk about adultery. He doesn't talk about marital unfaithfulness. Uh, he doesn't talk about sex outside of marriage. He talks about sex with a prostitute in order to make his case. So he, here's the whole point. If there were ever a form of sex that was purely physical, right? In the way that we often think about it, just physical, this would be it, right? So think about it with me. It's with a stranger. It involves absolutely no commitment. You'll likely never see that person again, ever again. And the relationship extends for maybe 30 minutes and then you never see them again. Purely physical, right? And Paul says, no, 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 no. Because you are united with Christ. And the sexual relationship in the context of marriage, is meant to serve as a window into a divine reality that we are one with Christ. If you're taking notes, consider writing down Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30 to 32. You can go read that, the whole context later. But Paul's making the point again, just like he is here in 1 Corinthians 6. And here's what he says. He says, the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. And what I'm talking about is... Christ and the church and your body. What? I, th I thought we were just talking about sex. I thought we were just talking about marriage. And now Paul's saying, no, what I'm talking about is your relationship with Jesus. And so he's making a connection here that we are united with Christ. Our bodies are united with Christ. And not only that, number two, relating to God the Holy Spirit, our bodies are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Now suddenly the book of Leviticus takes on power. You know, who here, uh, your favorite book of the Bible is Leviticus? All right, none of you, none of you. We're, this is the one that like in your Bible reading plan, you're like, oh, really? Okay, so, but here's what we see. This is the holiness code of God's people. How do we treat the temple? How do we treat the holy of holies where the kabod, the glory, the presence of God resides? And then when Jesus Christ dies on the cross, the curtain is torn in two and the presence of God goes where? Where? Help me out. Us. Our bodies. And so now the holy of holies is not a place it's not even here at 2884 Gladys Avenue. 
This is not where the Spirit of God resides. The Spirit of God resides in you, in your bodies. So every single time we defile our body, we defile the holy of holies. That's what we're doing. I I think it's helpful. This is a little bit raw, but pastor and author Kevin DeYoung, he puts it this way. He says, to put it bluntly, if you shack up with a prostitute, it's like dragging Christ, and I would add the Holy Spirit, into bed with her too. When you put your faith in Christ, you become one spirit with him. So when you put your sexual organs where they do not belong, you're putting the Lord Jesus where he doesn't belong. You can't take off Jesus. You can't take off the Holy Spirit like a pair of shoes. Before you go into the brothel, you take off your coat. You take off your shoes. You go inside. Nope, the Holy Spirit goes with you. Jesus Christ goes with you. Wherever you go, he goes. Let that be a source of encouragement, but also a very jarring reality that whatever we do with our bodies, God goes there with us. And to Paul, that is unthinkable. It is unthinkable. So again, look at those three questions with me again. Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ? And so the image that he gives here is a man going to a brothel, sleeping with a prostitute. What is he doing? He's grieving Christ. And, by the way, he's objectifying his neighbor, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Verse 19, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. He defiles the temple. And then he says, you are not your own. You are uh, bought with a price. You belong with the Heavenly Father. He rejects God. So that's the third point in your note sheet relating to the Father. Our bodies belong to God. Our bodies belong to God. Paul's argument both starts and ends with this vital point. Look at verse 13. He says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So it's not so much the stomach for food and food for the stomach as it is all for Jesus. Everything is for Jesus, it's all for Him. Whatever Jesus purchased with His blood, He should have lordship over. And that includes us, it also includes our bodies. And then he ends this way, verse 19 and 20. He says, do you not know your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So friends, I think maybe one of the things that would be really helpful for us to recognize is that literally every sin, every sin, not not just sexual sins, every single sin, like how we use our money, our greed, malice, slander, gossip, grudges, bitterness, you name it, literally every sin starts with the idea that I belong to myself. I am my own man. I'm my own woman, and I get to make whatever decisions I want to make with respect to my body. I can do what I want, with whom I want, wherever I want, whenever I want, because I am my own. Every single sin on the planet starts with that idea that I I know better than God knows, and I'm my own man. 
Every single one. And I think that's just so important for us to see. And yet, what does the Christian say? The Christian says, no, I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to him. And so I will seek to honor God with my body. I love the way that Wesley Hill puts this. He has a fantastic book called Washed and Waiting. If you like to read, I would just strongly recommend this book. He says this. The Christian story proclaims that our bodies belong to God and have become members of the corporate communal body of Christ. The gospel proclaims that we belong to God twice over. First, because he created us, and second, because he has redeemed us through the work of his son. Strictly speaking, we have no inalienable rights. God reserves all rights for himself and this extends even to the realm of our sexuality, what we humans do with our bodies. Let me ask you this question. Is that offensive to the 21st century Canadian? Yeah. Like, I'd be hard-pressed to find anything more offensive to our notion of self-dependence, independence, and self-reliance. That's how we live our lives that I'm my own person and I get to choose what I want, where I want, when I want. And yet Wesley Hill, he just blew the lid right off of that. And he said, not for the Christian. Not for the Christian. We, we don't live our lives that way. We say, I belong to God. I belong to God in everything that I do, in everything that I say, everyone I interact with. I'm constantly of this opinion, Lord, where are you leading me today? Who do you want me to have a conversation with? How do you want me to use my money? How do you want me to use my time? How do you want me to use my sexuality? I lay all of it down to you. Use me, Lord. Use me the way that you would want to use me for your will, for your pleasure. Not for my purposes, for your kingdom purposes. That's how I want to live my life. That's the calling of the Christian. A dying to self, a daily dying to self for the sake of Jesus Christ. But notice something again. I just, I, I hate to be a broken record, but you got to keep this in mind as we seek to use our mirror Bibles and not our binocular Bibles. This is a commitment for those who are already disciples of Jesus. It does no good to try to moralize someone who doesn't know Jesus. They don't have the same worldview as you. They don't have the same authority as you. They don't have the same assumptions as you. So of course they're going to have a different view on moral issues that different people embrace. So the best thing that you can do, if you want to lead people to faithfulness, invite them to know Jesus. Help them to see Jesus in you as opposed to trying to moralize their life. Jesus will lead them to repentance. You lead them to Jesus. But with respect to ourselves, as we have our mirror Bibles open, as we are looking at the word of God that brings light and life to us as we are on our discipleship journey, we're asking this question, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live my life? And that will be a good step. So then, what's Paul's conclusion? What does he say? Verse 18, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. <laughs> this week I was thinking about Laura Dern from uh, Jurassic Park when she knows all the velociraptors are loose, right? And what does she say? Run! 
run. It's interesting in scripture, almost every single sin we are called to withstand, right? Kind of like being under a waterfall, all the weight of the water is coming over you, you withstand it. And yet with sexual sin, he says, get out of there. Do not withstand that. You do not have the capability to withstand that. Flee, run, get out of there as fast as you can. And what do we do? What do we do? We, we usually stick around. We kind of try to interact with it, taste it, touch it, indulge in it. And God says flee. Paul says flee. And he doesn't want you simply to see what sexual sins are, right? He wants you to see why they are sexual sins in the first place. So let's review really quickly. Number one, because it destroys your relationship with God. It destroys your relationship with God. You reject his design. You turn what he intended to be an act of worship into something that is a form of self-giving pleasure. Number two, it dehumanizes the person that you're having sex with or the person you're lusting over if you're watching porn. Right? You begin to objectify human beings who are made in the image and the likeness of God. And it destroys the way that you begin to think about your neighbor. You begin to think about them differently. Porn is like a drug. It is like a drug for your brain. And then number three, it not only destroys your relationship with God, not only your relationship with your neighbor, it's also a sin against yourself. Paul says all other sins are outside the body. But in this one, you sin against your own body. It affects your soul. It affects your relationship with Jesus. It causes you to have a disordered and uh, uh, a disaffected relationship with Jesus. The spiritual implications of what we do with our bodies are enormous. They're enormous. And, and I just don't think we think about that very often. I like the way that pastor and author Timothy Keller puts this. He says this with, with respect to sexual encounters with people you're not married to. Even if you're not legally married, when you are having sex with someone, you might find yourself very quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you, but the other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility even to call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but are not married, just like every Ashton Kutcher movie, right? It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves to us. Is that not the plot line for every romantic comedy you've ever seen? That's, that's the effect that it has. So for the remainder of time that we have, I want us to talk about and for me to lay out a challenge for us to flee from sexual temptations. To flee from them. And again, if you are a guest here this morning, like, thanks for joining us. You picked a really good day to be here as the first day. Oh, man. Hope you come back. If it's your first day here and you don't know where you're at with Jesus, then just know that what I'm talking about right now, I'm, I'm talking directly to Christians. Those who have stepped over the, line, over the line to follow Jesus. Who believe that Jesus' words brings light and life to all who listen. 
And in that spirit, we are seeking to die to the old self, to flee from sexual immorality, and to devote ourselves to his word and to his will. And so to those of you who are Christians, I want to lay out some challenges to us. We might not have the temple of Aphrodite with a thousand temple prostitutes, but we do have tens of thousands of pornographic websites. And they're all at our fingertips. So I shared with you a couple weeks ago a couple of statistics. Let's look at the next slide here. Pornography, with respect to pornography, 65% of Christian men watch pornography by their own admission at least once a month. And do you know what the percentage is for non-Christians? 65%. No difference. No difference. And the, the rising group right now is women. Just 20 years ago, it was less than 20%. Now it's about 35%. It's rising very quickly, very rapidly. And with respect to cohabitation, we talked about how 49% of teens with religious background support living together within their marriage. Let's look at a couple other statistics with respect to pornography. Pornography is the largest money-making industry in North America, over $10 billion a year. And this is the latest statistic I could find. It's seven years old. It's probably higher. It makes more money per year than the MLB, NFL, NBA, and NHL combined. Think about that. It makes more money than the three largest U.S. networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. It makes more than the average year U.S. and Canada give in foreign aid combined. Pornography websites get more views than Netflix, Amazon, Facebook, and Twitter combined. 12% of all websites are pornographic. Pornography constitutes 25% of all internet search engine requests. That's a lot. 25%. 90% of children ages 8 through 16 have viewed pornography on the internet. Again, like my encouragement to you parents, don't be naive. They're better with their phones than you are. They are. The average age when one sees their first pornographic image is 11. And the top consumer of pornography is 12 to 17-year-old boys. Most people think of looking at porn as no big deal. It's just physical it's a victimless crime. What are you really hurting? You're just watching something on the internet. You're enjoying yourself, relieving yourself, and, and then it's over. Who cares? What's the big deal? But I hope you're convinced by now that there is an extremely spiritual dimension to how we use our bodies. To sex, to adultery, to pornography, to all of these things. And even... I find it really interesting, you know, there's an idea that maybe it's just single people who struggle with pornography, not married people. But that's not the case at all. Do you know that between married men and single men, the frequency with which they watch pornography is pretty much exactly the same? And that's a lot of the reason why a lot of Christian men, when they finally get married and they begin to have a sexual relationship, there's still incongruence that they have with respect to their spouse, because they've rewired their brain to think about their spouse as an object for their own will and pleasure. But every married person knows that sex is kind of difficult. It's a challenge. You know, you're seeking to give self-giving love, not self-taking love. And then we realize it for the first time. Watching porn is far easier than having sex with your spouse. Far easier. It takes more work, not less. It's more of a challenge, not less. But if we have trained our brain to look at porn pornographic images and to enjoy ourselves in that way, 
then it will distort the way that we view our spouse, even for those of us who are married. And not only that, you might say it's a victimless crime, but do you not know that the images or the videos that you are watching are the result of eating disorders and a lot of whitewashing of bodies and oftentimes um, a lot of drugs and abuse and in many cases, even sex trafficking? It is far from a victimless crime. Far from it. And so as people of the gospel, as Christians, I think one of the things when we talk about hollow and deceptive philosophies, like we talked about in week two, this is one of those examples. Christians are caught up in this, and it's all in the shadows. In the first century, you had to physically go to the temple of Aphrodite. Now the taboo was gone, right? Everyone was doing it, it was easy to do. But it was still a public event. You still had to, on your lunch break, walk over to the temple. But what do we have today? It's in your pocket, on your phone. It's right there. And, and parents, I, I just, I, I wanna encourage you that if you give a cell phone to your kids and there's, there's no blockers on them or you don't know what they're looking at, I just have to think that you're being unwise. Because like I shared with you already, your kids are far smarter than you are when it comes to technology. They know all the ways to get secretive and to hide uh, so that you don't know what they're looking at. And so I just want to encourage you to be intentional as the disciple makers of your home to be serious about this. And so to flee from something means that you are ready to take radical measures in order to get it out of your life. So for some of you, it might have to be something extremely serious, but it is serious, right? So a decision to uh, get filters on your internet, like Covenant Eyes, it's a great program, it's not that expensive, it's cheaper than Netflix, and you can get it for your whole house. Or to have an accountability partner. Like I, I recognize for, for some of us in this room, there is tremendous shame that's associated with our bodies. Because again, we still have that Gnosticism, Docetism idea that's locked up in our mind. And even if we believe that we are totally free for sex or that sex is ooh gross and we should become more disembodied and not think about physical pleasure, either way, there is shame that is associated with how we use our bodies. But here's my encouragement. Come out from the darkness. If you need help, ask for help. Ask for it, because there is such a deep spiritual dimension to our sexuality, we have to take it seriously. We have to take it seriously. Now, I know there might be some of us here thinking, Justin, I guess it's too late for me. I wish I heard the sermon 20 years ago, because I've, I've been watching porn for years. I have a sexual rap sheet of past mistakes over the course of multiple decades and I, I can't turn back time. I can't, I can't change those things. What possible hope is there for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. I intentionally left out the very best part of this chapter. And it starts at verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, etc., 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 nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's bad news. Next. But that is what some of you 
were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. To say that you were washed, think about that image. Any sort of filthy stains that we had, we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb that he now sees us as though we are perfectly righteous. We have been set free. The idea of being sanctified, that means you have been set apart again. Think again of the Holy of Holies. This is a set apart place in which the glory of God resides. And God says, I don't care about your past rap sheet. You cannot out the cross. You cannot out the cross. You have been set free. And then he says, you have been justified, which means you have been declared righteous, even though you're not. Even though you're not. Every single person in this room has not been fully faithful with respect to their bodies. And yet Jesus came precisely for that reason, so that you could be set free from the power of the law, so that every single time God the Father looks at you, he sees the perfection of his son Jesus. And therefore, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. And I pray that you would accept that today. One final note. If you need help, ask. Only you can take that first step. Only you can take the courage to say, you know what, I can't do this on my own. I need help. Reach out. Reach out. There's power for you in a community. There's power for you in accountability. And we would love to be that for you. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our Human Sexuality series. Finding biblical answers to questions about sex and marriage, orientation, singleness, and more. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway. Gateway.